Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. If you're looking for the white hot center of the coronavirus pandemic, chances are you're in it. But the question of why the U.S. has struggled so mightily when compared to other wealthy countries probably doesn't have a single answer. We've got a patchwork healthcare system with lots of disparities in access. Plus, Americans were generally in worse health going into the pandemic than people in lots of other countries. And we didn't have a coordinated government response. I could go on here. But there's something else in this whole mix of factors, and that's culture. In general, our data suggests that governments that were inefficient and loose cultures really struggled with the early stage of the pandemic. Michelle Gelfand is a psychology professor at the University of Maryland who has studied how countries across the world come together, or in some cases, don't. So that gives us some lessons. You know, we're going to be going through this tight, loose dance over the next 12 to 18 months, possibly, where when there's threat, we need to tighten. And when there's less threat, we can loosen. But we need to be calibrated in that. We need clear, consistent messages. And we need to swiftly be able to kind of navigate between these two cultural codes. Those codes vary wildly between different countries, says Gelfand, who's the author of the book Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. Some countries are very good at following directions and at forcing citizens to also follow those directions, basically through peer pressure. Other countries, like the U.S., are more about doing your own thing, not following rules so closely, and not submitting to the will of the group. Both have advantages, and loose cultures can sometimes tighten up at critical moments, like, for example, New Zealand, which we will get to later. But first, Contrast our approach to the coronavirus pandemic with that of Singapore, which in mid-April said you had to wear a mask. And oh, by the way, if you didn't, it would cost you. About $200 for first offenses, more than $700 for second offenses. The way to think about it is that some cultures, some groups have stronger glue, they're tighter, they have stricter rules and more severe punishments for violating the rules. And loose cultures are much more permissive. They have a wide range of behaviors they're seen as permissible. You know, think about Singapore. It's called the fine country because there's so many ways you can be punished for spitting or for not flushing the toilet or even for walking in front of your curtains naked can land you at fine in Singapore. In the early 1990s, in fact, Singapore banned something that seems ridiculous to ban. But it gives you insight into the nature of the governing approach in Singapore and why they might be so successful enforcing rules during a pandemic. I ignore polling as a method of government. I think that shows a certain weakness of mind. Lee Kuan Yew, Singapore's leader, probably did not do any polling before he enacted a ban on gum. Yeah, gum. That was back in 1992. You know, Americans look at this and they think that is just absolutely puzzling and also offensive. You know, why wouldn't you allow people to chew gum in your own country? And, you know, it turns out if we step back and think about why might that be functional? You know, Singapore has about 20,000 people per square mile. And that, you know, compare that to New Zealand that has about 50 people per square mile, more sheep per capita than people. What happened was in the late, you know, in in the late 80s, um, basically people were chewing gum with so many mouths per capita 
Gum was all over the place. And, you know, Lee Kuan Yew, who was kind of, you know, was saying, look, guys, like, we can't tolerate this. It's, it's actually causing so many problems. And it's even blocking sensors on trains and elevators. So he said, you know, guys, we're going to have to ban this tasty treat. A reporter from the BBC noted to Lee that maybe gum chewing represented a certain freeness of expression and spirit of creativity. Lee wasn't a big fan of the notion that chewing gum helped you be a more inventive person. He said... If you can't think because you can't chew, try a banana. This was a man, for better or for worse, who exerted very tight control over his country for decades. I say without the slightest remorse that we wouldn't be here, we would not have made the economic progress if we had not intervened on very personal matters, who your neighbor is, how you live, the noise you make, how you spit or where you spit, or what language you use. Had we not done that and done it effectively, we would not be here today. He was really an architect of the tightness of Singapore. He understood this is a place that has a lot of threat. And when we have a lot of threat, and that could be from Mother Nature, think constant disasters or famine, or human nature, like constant invasions or pathogen outbreaks, These are things that make it really important to have strict rules to coordinate. We think about, again, like social norms help us coordinate. Some groups across their history have needed to coordinate much more. Some other groups that are looser, have had less threat, could afford to be more permissive. Lee ruled until 1990, and his son is now Singapore's prime minister. Michelle Gelfand says every country has some tightness to it, some social norms that we adhere to, because no norms would be nuts. I mean, imagine you go into the street and people are driving on either side of the street or not obeying by stop signs. Or imagine you go into a restaurant and people are chewing with their mouths wide open and belching loudly and stealing food from each other's plates. That sounds like actually my New York family sometimes. <laughs> or, imagine, <laughs> or imagine you go into an elevator and, and you know, people are facing backwards or or that people are having sex all over the place, you know, in city parks or on buses. There's a reason why we develop norms to avoid these kind of scenarios. They're the glue that keep us together. Our norms are so ingrained that we barely notice them. But if they disappeared, we surely would notice. In tighter cultures, though, there are stricter norms, and people frown upon you more for violating them. And I've been studying this concept of tight and loose for about two decades, and it turns out to be a pretty important difference between not just nations, but also states and organizations, and even our own households. And and it's important to understand why these differences evolve, what benefits or liabilities they provide us, and of course, how they affect what happens when we're dealing with things like corona collective threats. Gelfand notes that there are good reasons why tight countries are that way. And some of the very tightest countries in the whole world are Pakistan, Malaysia, South Korea, Norway, and yes, Singapore. And there are also reasons why the loosest countries are that way. Those are countries like Ukraine, Greece, Brazil, and yeah, the U.S. And, you know, you could think about our history. We've been separated by two oceans from other continents. Um, we haven't had a chronic threats from Mexico and Canada continually invading our country. We have our share of natural disasters, and some there's some parts in the U.S. that tend to lean tighter accordingly, places like in the South and the Midwest. But generally speaking, we can afford to be more permissive, and that has been actually, we can see in our data that the U.S. has been loosening over the last 200 years. 
Um, mm-hmm. I do want to say, you know, every culture has tight and loose elements. So in the U.S., we can zoom in and see, you know, what domains might be tight. And actually, one of them has to do with our privacy and our individual rights. Those are really tightly regulated because they're so important in our culture. Uh, but in general, the U.S. has had the luxury of having more permissive norms. So we talked about Singapore, um, but give me a broader sense of some of the tightest countries in the world in terms of these very, you know, specific things that you're supposed to do there um, and like ways that you're supposed to behave. Yes. So uh, in the uh, data, we can see places like Singapore, Japan, and also places like Germany and Austria tend to veer tighter. Places like New Zealand, Brazil, uh, the Netherlands, the U.S., and Spain, Italy, um, tended to veer looser. And um, actually, you know, you can see that these differences were very strongly connected to the amount of threat that countries had over the course of their histories. So you mean the tighter they are, the more threat they've had. So they really have to have it together in case somebody invades or something. That's right. So as I was gathering surveys around the world, this is a 30 plus country study. I was actually also looking for archival data, historical data about the histories of these nations. How many natural disasters have they had to face? How many invasions have they had over the last hundred years and how many pathogen outbreaks. And when we were measuring these kinds of factors, we then can see that they actually predicted how tight or loose the countries were in this data set. So can you tell me what kinds of um, pieces of data, what kind of metrics are you using to say, okay, Singapore is a very, one of those very, very tightest countries. New Zealand is one of the loosest, maybe along with America, the Netherlands. What What pieces of data are telling you that? Well, you know, we can actually measure this by even just asking people about the strength of norms in their countries. And we can see that people agree with there's a lot of rules to follow here. If we don't follow the rules, there's going to be some some punishments. And we can see that with those kinds of just simple survey measures that uh, we can rank order countries. But we can also dig deeper into the countries and see really what you can look for is how much order versus openness is there in a country. So by order, I mean, like we can see that tight cultures have lower crime generally. They have more monitoring, more police per capita. They're also more uniform. They have more synchrony. Actually, one indicator that we studied was how synchronized are city clocks in streets. So you can look at city clocks and see like how much do they vary in terms of what time they say. In tight cultures, they're pretty much uh, identical. But in loose cultures, you're really not totally sure what time it is, like in Greece and in Italy. <laughs> you know, the clocks, say they're not synchronized. And also, how much self-control is there? That's another form of order. You know, are people, is there a lot of debt? Is there a lot of alcoholism? You know, tight cultures have a lot of order, but loose cultures struggle with order. On the flip side, you know, loose cultures have a lot of openness. They're more tolerant of a wide variety of people. They're more creative. They're more open to new ideas. So you can look for this kind of order openness trade-off operating to see, like, you know, how can we understand um, these differences across countries? You mentioned um, debt and alcoholism. Are you saying in tighter countries, people don't drink as much, and they don't borrow as much money? That's right. I mean, we can see that when you have a lot of social control, think about you're in a context where there's a lot of rules and potential punishments. One of the outcomes of that is that you start to manage your impulses much more at an early age. If you have a lot of rules, you better be able to manage your impulses. And that has its kind of benefits for things like you know, obesity and also debt and binge drinking and drugs. So yeah, that, that you can see that there's more self-regulation that mirrors the social regulation that happens in tight cultures. So 
So I think I'm right in saying that you've taught college classes in both Maryland and in Beijing. That's right. Could you see some of the differences that you're talking about? Well, I guess, first of all, maybe tell us a little bit. How does China compare to the U.S. in terms of tightness, looseness? And then what did you see? If Did you see that reflected in your classes? Yeah, you know, um, so I teach both in Maryland and I've been teaching in Beijing. And classrooms are a great setting to look at. You know, actually, in the science study, we could rank order situations in terms of how tight or loose they were. When you're in a classroom or you're in a funeral or you're in a library, we tend to tighten up. You know, we know that there's rules. We have to abide by them. And in mm-hmm. every country, those situations are tighter as compared to being like in a city street or in a, in a park in your own bedroom. Those are looser situations. And actually, humans are like incredibly able to navigate between these shifts and tight and loose uh, without even thinking about it. But actually, what we could see is the classroom, it's, while it's tight in many countries, it's actually much looser in the U.S. So in the U.S., you'll see people, at least in some of the classrooms I've taught in, you know, wearing pajamas or they might be on their phone. Yep. So they might yep. be eating a sandwich. <laughs> and in Beijing, you know, I find that there's a much more restricted range of behavior. Behavior that's permitted in the classroom. Um, and, you know, it's, it's an interesting issue when, when I have my students coming from East Asia to, to my classes because they look at the classroom and they're just really baffled by what is going on here. And do they respect this, this professor? And I'm like, yeah, they mm-hmm. respect me. But it's just that, you know, we have a looser culture. And you even mm-hmm. see that in libraries. You know, libraries in the U.S., even though they're stricter, you see people doing all sorts of weird things in some libraries. Um, and so the point here is that every situation is constructed as tight or loose, but you'll still see differences in it. What it means to be in a park in the U.S., it's a loose situation like it is in Pakistan. But in Pakistan, it's a restricted range of what you're allowed to do in that situation. And once we understand that, we'll be better able to navigate these cultural differences when we're traveling, when we're working in other cultures, when we're reading the news. We'll have a different perspective on how do we understand human behavior around the world. So bringing it to coronavirus, this this issue that we're dealing with right at the moment, one of the fascinating things is that when you look at the spectrum of countries and that some of the tightest sort of restrictions and culture exists in a place like Singapore and some of the loosest exists in a place like New Zealand, well, they kind of both, if you're wondering whether tight or loose societies deal well with pandemics, kind of both so far, it looks like. I just wonder, as you've seen countries try to deal with what we've seen, you know, in terms of the pandemic, what have you seen? So, you know, early in March, I started to get really kind of nervous about this issue. And I wrote an op-ed for the Boston Globe that said, you know, we're going to need to tighten up in the U.S. Um, And I I anticipated it's going to be a, you know, kind of an issue because in loose cultures, when you haven't had a lot of collective threat, people have much more difficulty sacrificing autonomy and liberty for constraint. We're just not used to that. And so I started collecting some data. Um, I downloaded all the cases. I downloaded the deaths all the way up until like early April to analyze which countries are doing better. This is actually research that's now under peer review. And, you know, we found something that was really quite striking. When you think about a collective threat, you need to coordinate And there's two ways you can coordinate, and both are really important. One is your government. Your government needs to be super efficient to be able to coordinate between the private and public sector. But you also need people who are behaving themselves, who are following rules, who are tight. And we found that those two factors were really important to predicting countries that were able to flatten the curve and had lower death rates, places like Singapore and Taiwan, Germany, Japan, and places that were looser, like the U.S., Italy, Spain, they had much more difficulty flattening curves. And to this day, we know that's the case. You know, New Zealand's a really interesting exception because it's a loose place, 
but actually they had very, very strong and consistent messages from the government uh, and people trusted the government. So they were able to really rally. And in fact, everyone followed the rules. Well, you know, it's interesting when you talk about tight cultures being related to like external threats, like, you know, how often do you have to have an like, are there earthquakes and you have mm-hmm. to all do the same thing at the same time? Or how often are there invasions and you have to deal with that really quickly? And that we just, because we have two oceans and our neighboring countries are not invading us, we don't really have to deal with that. I, I also wonder if that feeds in where people say, like, how big a threat could this really be? Right. Because in other places, people are like, it could be a pretty big threat. We've seen big threats. We've lived through big threats. And I feel like here people are like, could it really be that bad? I doubt it. Yeah. I mean, it's such an important point you raise. And, you know, the issue here also is that with corona, it's kind of abstract. You know, it's like, OK, it's a disease. It's very different than warfare when you're like really can visibly see what's going on, see the enemy. You know, this is a psychologically kind of abstract idea. We also have a lot of conflicting messages about it. Um, we, we're in an era right now. We haven't been trusting scientists. We have a lot of conflicting information. That's a big part of this, too. Um, and, you know, we can go back to the 1918 pandemic. We had very similar issues happening then. Even some of the states that locked down really early, they wound up reopening too early and had even more severe second waves of the virus. And so I think we really need to kind of come together and collectively just agree on the basic evolutionary fact, which is that when there's collective threat, we need to tighten. That doesn't mean that it's going to be forever. It just means temporarily we need to tighten. And some people who I call kind of rule breakers really have a difficulty with that. And we need to negotiate that. We need to not shame people. We need to not try to humiliate people who are not following the rules, but just help to convince them that this is temporary. And in fact, our research shows that when people do follow the rules, they can reduce the threat. So there's a lot of you know self-efficacy that we know it's going to make a difference. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking to Michelle Gelfand. We're looking at more permissive and more restrictive cultures, how they got that way, and how they affect us. Michelle is a professor of psychology at the University of Maryland. She's also the author of Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at cultural differences between states and what those differences mean in this time when we're trying to deal with a pandemic. If you want to hear our conversations every week, you can get our podcast on Spotify. You can get it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 2013, Michelle Gelfand did what she does a lot, conduct an experiment, one that would test how helpful you are, kind of. You know, we can ask people in surveys, like how tolerant are you, how open are you to various different people, whether they are, Mm -hmm. you know, immigrants or people from different races, religions, stigmatized, people who wear tattoos. And we can get responses to those surveys and see that tight cultures have, they struggle with these kinds of issues. They they find difference to be more dangerous because it threatens the social order. But we wanted to see, can we actually see this happening in city streets, like not with surveys, but just with behavior? 
Gelfand is a professor of psychology at the University of Maryland, and she was wondering how citizens of different countries vary in terms of who they help. So she sent her international research assistants home to their countries one summer with some extra equipment. And I actually had them in one condition asking for help on city streets and in stores uh, wearing these fake facial warts. I bought them on the internet for them. <laughs> and we like, put them on their face. In another condition, they had tattoos and nose rings and purple hair. And in a third condition, they were just wearing their normal face. Gelfand is the author of the book, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. And she argues that countries with tighter cultures tend to be very strict about following rules. Looser countries, less so. And what we found was really super interesting. And and there was no difference in helping behavior when people were just wearing the normal face. But when people were wearing these strange facial warts or the tattoos, they got much less help in tight cultures. Uh, So people were much more open to them in in looser cultures. And we can see that, you know, being different uh, is more seen as more difficult and more dangerous uh, in tighter cultures. Even if they have more order, they struggle with openness in general. Now, looseness and tightness both have upsides and downsides. In recent months, we've seen tight cultures from Germany to Singapore to Japan to Norway do particularly well in combating the pandemic. They imposed rules, and their citizens have mostly been very good about following them. Looser countries from Italy to Brazil to the U.S. have often not fared as well. But Gelfan says the power of social norms to create either a somewhat restrictive rule-abiding culture or kind of a permissive rule-breaking culture, that exists within the U.S. too. We actually measured this with surveys, with archival data. For instance, some states have, you know, a lot of corporal punishment in classrooms. A lot of students still hit by teachers, very severe punishments for deviance. Or they have a lot, of, a lot less latitude. Think about states that have, you know, very few uh, bars per capita. She says southern and midwestern states tend to be tighter states, whereas coastal states tend to be looser. But really what was fascinating from our point of view is we also measured some of the same predictors, things like natural disasters, pathogens, uh, scarcity, and they tended to correlate with the rank order of tightness. And also states that were tight tended to have more order. They had people who were more conscientious, we call them in in psychology research. They had more law enforcement per capita. They had more self-regulation in general. Loose cultures, though, again, cornered the market on openness. They had more tolerance, less discrimination, and they were actually more fun, (laughs) according to our rank orders, whereas tight states were more polite. But why then haven't we seen southern states enacting the most restrictive policies during the pandemic in the model of some of the world's tightest nations, like Singapore and China? Well, Gelfand says, it may be that many southern and midwestern states are indeed following the rules. At least the rules as set out by a very important person, the president. But the leaders don't all the time understand the nature of the threat. So tight cultures can follow the wrong rules in some cases. Uh, and I, I, I think we're seeing now more recently that even some of the tighter states like Texas and Florida are starting to realize, like, wait, we're, we're seeing like actually that we can't reopen so quickly. We have a lot of threat. We have to tighten. They're getting that evolutionary impulse, you know, kind of um, more strongly now that they're very carefully looking what's happening in their context. So, but that's taken a while, you know, it's taken a little while to kind of get that calibrated. 
So when when you looked at like the tightest states, um, Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas are the three tightest. Uh, Washington, Oregon, California are the three loosest. Is there a reason that you think that is? I mean, we talked about why America might be different from other countries, but these are all places in America. Yeah, so that's right. Why the differences? Yeah, that's right. I mean, like I mentioned, like um, some of the predictors have to do with ecology. You know, a lot of places that are in the South that veer tight had a lot of disasters or a lot of scarcity. Mm. Other explanations, though, are more historical. For example, uh, the Civil War I read about in the book, it was seen as almost like an invasion in the South. They felt invaded. That's another explanation. Um, yet another one is who were the founders of these places? Like when people who went out to California were risk takers. They were that place was very diverse from a very, very early time in the 1800s where people were mixing a lot. When you have a lot of mixing, it's hard to agree upon any particular rule. So it pushes you towards diversity. The founders in the South were coming in, in large part from places where they were kind of tight to begin with, honor cultures where there were strict regulations and codes. Uh, that help people adapt to the kind of lawlessness of their environment. So, you know, there's multiple explanations, but we can see that, you know, the places really vary on terms of how much they emphasize order and openness. Uh, they vary in their responses to collective threats. And they suggest that we need to kind of zoom in and, and start to build more empathy for differences even across states. Do you feel like our political divisions come back to this question of, I mean, when I, you know, I'm literally sitting here with the, the list of uh, states that are tighter or looser in my lap and the tightest states, like with the tightest kind mm -hmm. of cultures and norms and, you know, more sort of veering towards order and strong punishments are Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas. I could keep reading. Yeah. but. Um, you get the idea politically. And, and the loosest state is California and, and Oregon and Washington are right, very liberal states. I mean, is that coincidental or is there actually a relationship here with, with how people think about things politically? Yeah. And, you know, I think we can kind of broaden out, even think about Brexit, think about what's happening in other countries that have these, what I call them kind of tight, loose divides. And what we found is that like before the election, what we were looking for was to see who's voting for these kind of populist leaders? Is, is there some kind of logic or is it some kind of random kind of situation or based on charismatic factors? And it turns out that we had a hunch that it, people that feel threatened, whether it's by ISIS or immigration, that they tend to really want these kinds of tight leaders. They feel that the U.S. is breaking down in its social order and they want desperately mm. to return to a social order. And that's exactly what we found before the the last election primary. We actually measured how threatened people felt. They, we actually measured how much do you want more tightness in the U.S. And, and we, we could see that there's a strong connection between those variables and that this in turn predicts support for people like Trump. And at the same exact pattern of threat and desire tightness uh, and desire for Le Pen was found in France. And I mm. believe that we have this kind of new divide between rural manufacturing areas that are actually objectively threatened, who are really looking for leaders to return them to a tight social order. It just kind of suggests that we need to be mindful of, you know, how do we deal with threat that people feel? Some of it's objective uh, based on lost jobs and AI revolution really making a lot of these communities fall apart. But some of it's fake threat. And some of it is something that we really need to kind of get calibrated. We know that leaders also are kind of aware of the psychology. They target groups 
you know, who are already vulnerable and, and they promise to return to a tight social order of yesteryear that, you know, kind of is, you know, we know that that's going to be, you know, very difficult to do in this day and age. So I think that tight loose has something to say about the rise of populism. It's not the only factor, but we need to start paying attention to who's feeling threatened and we need to negotiate that threat. I've written a little bit about this, about this evolutionary appeal of populist leaders, because when people feel threat, they want to tighten up. And, uh, you know, for innovation, we need to be able to produce ideas, but we need to be able to scale them up and, and, yeah. and coordinate. And I think that's where it's important to have empathy to say, you know, we need each other. We need the both order and openness to function as a society. Um, and so one's benefits are the other's liabilities and vice versa. Do you worry that we're at a moment now that really privileges tighter societies, the Japans and the Singapores um, and the Germanys, um, and that uh, looser societies, America, Brazil, you know, are at a disadvantage because, okay, like maybe it was great to like, you know, start the uh, IT revolution or, you know, start up Silicon Valley and things were really loose. But, but we're at a moment that requires a different set of things. Yeah. You know, in the Boston Globe op-ed, I wrote that, you know, we, you know, we have examples in our history when we were able to tighten up, where we're able to, you know, kind of coordinate and come together as a nation. World War II was a great example. Yes. I mean, we yeah. we were able then to coordinate. We can really quickly get tight back then. And it, it also, we maintain our innovative spirit. I mean, we want to balance order and constraint in the face of a collective threat with our incredible um, innovative spirit. We're struggling with this right now. We're learning as we go. We have a lot of interference on this threat that we're facing. And I'm hoping that we're going to get this tight loose dance that I think is going to be happening, that we're going to have to swiftly tighten up when there's threat and we can gradually loosen when we have less threat, that we can come together and really use this terminology and this idea. We've done it before. We should do it now. And we're going to come out better for it. I know we can do it because we've done it before. But we need strong leadership. And it, if that has to be at the local level, that's great. We just need people who understand when we need to tighten. And again, maintaining our innovative spirit, which is something that is distinctly American. Hmm. Michelle Gelfand is a psychology professor at the University of Maryland, College Park. She's the author of Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. Michelle, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And on our website, we've got the story of a really interesting experiment on the power of culture. It was done back in the 1950s at Swarthmore College, and it involved people changing their view about the length of a line that was obvious. It was right in front of them. So why did they change their view and move from the right answer, by the way, to the wrong answer about how long the line was? Well, because everybody around them did it. The power of culture. That's at innovationhub.org. Mm-hmm.